guys. Welcome back to Monday Warfare, the battles within. It is Raw versus Nitro as we break down this weekly episodic Monday Night War. Crazy times here back in the 1990s. And I am your host, Ray Russell, a returning Ray Russell, guys. Welcome back to Monday Warfare. Brand new season upon us. And what a perfect time to jump back into things. Twas the summer of 96, and I'm flying solo here this week, guys. But I want to remind everyone, I am looking for a brand new Monday Warfare co-host. I hate to call the Monday Night War by myself, but we'll do that in the interim while we're waiting to find that just that right co-host here for the show. For those interested, if you have a little experience and you can make the time, you can contact me on Twitter at Grenade. Send me a DM there or email me at WrestleCopia at gmail.com. That's WrestleCopia at gmail.com. And let me know you're interested in joining the WrestleCopia Podcast Network as the brand new co-host here of Monday Warfare. And we have tons to jump into here this week as we head into the July 1st edition of WWS Monday Night Raw and WCW Monday Nitro. We are just six days out from the WCW Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. Yes, that pay-per-view. And over on the WWF end of things, we have drama in the Ultimate Warrior camp. Go figure. Plus, the build continues for the upcoming WWF In Your House International Incident, July 96 pay-per-view as well. So we have a ton of things to get into here this week on the show. But before we do, I have to remind everyone you can listen to Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, Raw vs. Nitro, plus other podcasts like The Wrestling Memory Grenade and the Regional Wrestling Podcast, all of that at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. That's at WrestleCopia.com, WrestleCopia.com, and anywhere. Your podcast streaming needs are met from Apple, Spotify, Google, and beyond. Make sure you give it a listen. All of our shows doing well in the podcast ratings, and I have you guys, the listeners, to thank for that. Also want to ask you guys to go check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash wrestling grenade. Tons of great videos up there. Old school wrestling at its finest. You can find us there again, youtube.com slash wrestling grenade. Subscribe to our YouTube channel so you never miss a beat. Plus, you can follow us on social media. You can follow me on Twitter. At Rasslin Grenade. Again, that's at R A S S L I N Grenade. Also, follow and like us at Facebook.com slash Rasslin Grenade. And of course, if you guys have a couple bucks left over in your PayPal accounts or eating away at your pockets, I encourage you to check out our Patreon account over at Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Again, that address is Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. I have multiple tiers over there for you guys to choose from. But I always recommend starting off at that $5 all-access tier. Get you all sorts of gifts for just $5, including all of my insanely detailed show notes for here on Monday Warfare, as well as the Wrestling Memory Grenade and Regional Wrestling Podcast as well. Plus, you'll also receive digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure, early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia. You can listen to some of the podcast days, sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners, and of course, also part of that $5 all-access tier, it's the Patreon-exclusive watch-along series, covering many past WWF and WCW pay-per-views, Coliseum videos, Saturday night's main events, Clash of the Champions, and so much more. All of that and more for just $5, one low cost of just $5. No subscription, cancel anytime. give it a try for a month, I think you'll like the content we offer, and every penny of it goes right back in to the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So if you guys can, if you can spare that $5 a month, Please show your support, help me pay the bills, and keep the WrestleCopia Podcast Network and everything that goes with it. All of the different podcasts, all the social media accounts help enable me to keep everything up and running for the months and the years to come. With all that out of the way, it is time to jump back into things. You guys have waited months 
for the returning Monday Warfare. We're in a brand new season. July 1st, 1996 is where we go back to here. We're going to kick things off with the World Wrestling Federation this week and WWF News. And we're going to kick things off on a bit of a sad note here this week as it's reported that Christine Rosati of the famous Rosati sisters passed away on June the 27th from the E. coli virus. At the age of just 47 years old, Christine going to be followed many years later by her sister Vivian, who passed away in 2018, and Diane passing away a year later in 2019. Also in WWF news, Barry Windham had a meeting with Vince McMahon this past week, and Windham was said to have been around that 275-pound mark, looking at least 20 pounds overweight, but was interested in making a comeback at the age of 36. Wow, just 36. Think about that. Windham peaked in his 20s, early 30s, and essentially retired due to knee injuries at the age of around 33 years old. But he's looking to make a full-time comeback here in 1996. And it's stated that the odds are pretty good that Wyndham will be back here in the World Wrestling Federation before too long, with Meltzer even joking that maybe they can team Wyndham with Dustin Rhodes as Silverdust. Good one, Meltz. Good one. As we move on, it's also reported that Ron Simmons is expected to make his WWF debut at the next set of TV tapings in July as Sonny's new single star with a huge push behind him. Ron Simmons on his way in. Wait till he sees the gear they want him to wear. Damn! Rolling on, it appears that Stone Cold Steve Austin missed all of the house shows after the TV tapings here following King of the Ring. Austin had to miss the shows because his upper lip was mangled apparently from a kick to the face by Mero at the King of the Ring, which we all know about, and that injury reopened in the finals against Jake the Snake Roberts later in the same night. Now, Austin did work that first night of TV tapings. Remember getting in the ring with The Undertaker on Monday Night Raw last week. Austin also appeared at the second night of tapings for superstars, but he did a gimmick where he didn't work the matches. He would come out and state that his opponents were below him so he wouldn't get into the ring with them. And if you guys remember those quote-unquote matches from the summer of 96. That was why they were simply just protecting Steve Austin's face there. And it's reported that Austin consulted with a plastic surgeon, but it's not believed that he's going to be needing any plastic surgery to repair the damage. Even still, Austin off the road until July 5th, which is just a few days away here. Also, we're going to go off to WWF Superstars notes. That's the TV taping. All of the newcomers have arrived. We've talked about them in the past, but let's take a look at what happens with them here in their initial debuts with the WWF. Tom Brandy, a.k.a. Johnny Gunn, debuted as Salvatore Sincere, coming out to Italian entrance music doing a gimmick where he tells the fans how much he loves them. It's similar to the Rougeau brothers being the All-American Boys gimmick, only I think they did that a lot better. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Sincerely. Also, Tracy Smothers debuted in the WWF as Freddie Joe Floyd from Bowlegs, Oklahoma. And he's already feuding on superstars anyway with Justin Hawk Bradshaw. They call it a Texas-Oklahoma rivalry. I'm sure Jim Ross did anyway. Smothers, though, won the first match on the tapings, but Bradshaw coming back, beating him in the rematch. There's actually an interesting story about the name Freddie Joe Floyd and the gimmick behind it. Now, Bowlegs, Oklahoma, it may sound fictitious, but it is a real place. And it is also a small town where Jack and Jerry Briscoe grew up before moving to Blackwell, Oklahoma. And again, the name Freddie Joe Floyd, listen to this. Jack Briscoe's given name, Freddie Joe Briscoe. While Jerry Briscoe's real name, 
Floyd Gerald Briscoe, Freddie Joe Floyd, Bolex, Oklahoma, meant as a rib on the Briscoe Brothers. Doesn't seem like it bodes well for the future of Tracy Smothers here in the World Wrestling Federation, but speaking of stinker gimmicks, T.L. Hopper, that's the former dirty white boy Tony Anthony. Now, T.L. Hopper, the T.L., stands for toilet lid, by the way. Creative, yes, I know. But T.L. Hopper does debut with a win over Duke the Dumpster Drossy. That had to be a really stinky match, pun intended. It's reported that T.L. Hopper comes out to entrance music that sounds like toilets flushing. That's because it is toilets flushing. And he also brings his favorite plunger to the ring with him, which he calls Betsy. Are we just recycling names here? Outlaw Ron Bass had Miss Betsy the bullwhip. Now it's Betsy the plunger here for T.L. Hopper. Anywho, he brings the plunger to ringside with him, even kissing that dirty bathroom tool. And after he picks up the win, he grinds the plunger into the face of his foes. Now, we won't see that very much here because T.L. Hopper, he's not long for wins. Now, the way Meltzer describes it, he says, Dirty white boy Tony Anthony is doing a total hick plumber gimmick, as if the WWF doesn't already have enough hick-type characters in the company. Also new to the WWF, Alex Porto debuted as Alex the Pug Porto, doing an amateur wrestling gimmick, recycling the Steiner Brothers theme and all. Also, Wild Bill Irwin here as the Goon, doing a hockey player gimmick with hockey organ music coming to the ring. I believe that organ theme music that Dave Meltzer's referring to there is Charge, if I'm not mistaken. Also, Jim the Anvil Neidhart returns to the WWF under a mask as Who, from who knows where, weighing who knows what. Meltzer even states that since Neidhart did a job for Savio Vega in his debut matchup here, who knows what plans are in store for him? Oh, you can see the puns coming. It's funny, pal. Also at the taping, Brian Pillman came out doing the Bushwhackers march with Luke and Butch. No, say it ain't so, Brian. But it appears he was only pretending to have turned babyface here. Pillman cracking Luke over the back with his crutch. Well, that'll get you over as a babyface, at least with me. And I referenced this just a little bit ago. Stone Cold Steve Austin getting the mega push now as the king of the ring, refusing to wrestle the likes of Sonny Rogers and Portuguese Manowar Aldo Montoya here at the Superstars taping. And like I said, this was done in order to keep Austin out of the ring to protect him from further injury to the busted lip. So Rogers and Montoya given forfeit victories over Steve Austin here on the Superstars tapings, but then Stone Cold beating them both up. And I guess that was the bottom line. They also did an angle on Superstars, where Sonny called out Phineas Godwin in order to apologize to him, but instead she ends up slapping him. How could he ever fall for such a ridiculous possibility that Sonny could be interested in Phineas? And I won't spoil the finish of that segment for you guys, because we're going to talk about it. We're going to see it right here on this edition of the July 1st Monday Night Raw. The Superstars taping goes on, however. It's Mark Merrow with a TV win over Triple H doing yet another job. Pushed down that card after that click curtain call. But during the matchup, Marlena comes ringside giving Sable a present, which upset Merrow so bad he actually slaps it out of the hands of Sable. Well, that doesn't sound like a babyface move. Nevertheless, they continue on this Marlena and Sable storyline. And here's a fun story. Well, maybe not if you were there. In the house show department, the wrestlers had lots of problems due to either a flight delay or cancellations getting into Louisville from Madison, Wisconsin. 
So Aldo Montoya and Duke the Dumpster Drossi had to stall for about 45 minutes in front of the crowd doing one match where Duke Drossi won by turning heel and then a second match which Aldo Montoya won before the rest of the crew made it sans Jim Helwig. Think about that for a minute, and for the lucky fans in Louisville, they didn't have to. They actually got to witness 45 minutes of Duke Drossi and Aldo Montoya in the ring. Woof, talking about a holy grail. I'd love to see that. Also here in the news, it appears that Brian Pillman has suffered a setback. Pillman, scheduled to show up for an ECW show in Deer Park, wasn't able to make the appearance as originally planned. It seems he had backed out several weeks in advance after suffering an ankle infection which required yet another surgery, and in turn has caused Pillman to be hooked up to an IV the past several weeks, which may explain why he's had that big patch on his arm during his appearances on WWF TV in recent weeks as well. And here we go. You guys knew it was coming. It's time for Warrior Man drama. Warrior Man here. Yes, the future of Jim Helwig, a.k.a. the ultimate warrior in the WWF, is again in question, after his missing several weekend house shows and the death of his father. Helwig's father, Tom Helwig, who he had been estranged from since the age of three, had been living in South Florida and passed away on June the 30th, just a day before this Raw taping. Now, Helwig didn't appear for any of his scheduled dates after working television on June the 25th in La Crosse, Pennsylvania, but at the house shows in Indianapolis on June the 28th, it was announced he wasn't there due to transportation problems. And while on tour June the 29th in Detroit, the wrestlers were given the word that Helwig was through with the company. Either he had quit or been fired. Nobody was really sure, which is basically the same thing, except in this specific wartime situation with WCW, a huge difference between quitting and being fired from the company. Now, you see, if Helwig were to quit, he would be unable to work for WCW for the remainder of his contract, which is believed to be about another 14 months. Now, if he was fired, he could work anywhere that he wanted to immediately after termination, although the WWF could suspend him for a while before firing him, similar to what WCW did with Vader. Remember, Vader initially fired back in the early fall, the beginning of September of 1995, but Vader couldn't get out until January 96, eventually appearing at the Royal Rumble pay-per-view. Now, Meltzer's statement on the situation is, except for a one-shot curiosity deal, WCW would be totally insane to want the Warrior anyway because of his inherent problems. Well, I can't really argue that. And it appears that Brett the Hitman Hart was called that morning when Helwig began no-showing and told that they were tired of Helwig's constant demands and wanted the Hitman for emergency duty to work the Detroit and Pittsburgh shows over the weekend to make up for Helwig not being there. For whatever reason, the Hitman didn't come back. A call was then made to Sid Udy, the former Sid Vicious, Sid Justice, and Psycho Sid. Sid, of course, out of the company for months now. Must have been softball season. And Sid made his surprise return over the weekend house shows as a babyface replacement for the Ultimate Warrior. Now, in both Detroit and Pittsburgh, ring announcer Bill Dunn announced that the Warrior wouldn't be there because, and I quote, he refuses to wrestle in a city like fill-in-the-blank, basically turning the Warrior heel and burying him in both cities. The WWF did offer refunds in Pittsburgh and Detroit, and reportedly a few dozen did take the refunds in both cities, but they did promise that the Warrior would be replaced by the craziest wrestler in the WWF, although they wouldn't mention the name at the top of the shows. 
Then later in the show, as there was a flock of run-ins during a Shawn Michaels versus Vader title match with four heels, the likes of Vader, Bulldog, Owen, and Goldust, beating down two of the top babyfaces in Shawn Michaels and Ahmed Johnson, it was Sid who made his surprise return, coming out to a huge pop as he chased the heels away, so Sid is definitely back in that warrior spot as a babyface. Now, later in the shows, it was Sid going over on Owen Hart with the powerbomb in just 40 seconds flat both nights, the same basic scenario in both cities, Detroit and Pittsburgh. So it appears Psycho Sid back full-time here with the World Wrestling Federation. One man's loss, another man's gain. It's reported that it is not known exactly what caused the latest McMahon-Helwig situation, although this has been a constant situation between the two with Helwig's constant demands, which has led to him being fired from the WWF on two occasions in the past. Of course, his threats to walk out, which has led to him getting huge payoffs to agree to work for pay-per-view shows like SummerSlam back in 1991. Now, Warrior also made an agreement to return at the tail end of 1995, which is why we saw that little Warrior video package they threw in at the end of a Superstars taping back around that time frame. But after initially making a verbal agreement, the Warrior backing out, having problems, leading to the Ultimate Warrior not returning until WrestleMania 12, which was obviously built around his return, not to mention all his problems in dealing with the promoters in Europe as of late, and is walking out on his own promotion in Las Vegas the day before the show after leaving with several sponsorship checks. Shame on you, Jim. The gossip among the wrestlers was that Warrior was unhappy with his WrestleMania 12 payoff. Now we go back in time, and it's reported that Helwig legitimately earned $550,000 at WrestleMania 7 for his match with the Macho King Randy Savage, and it's been reported that he earned $1 million the year prior at WrestleMania 6 when he took the title off of Hulk Hogan. And at one point in 1992, this is news to me, it appears that the Warrior held McMahon up again prior to the Survivor Series 92 event, refusing to wrestle unless he began to receive $1 million per every pay-per-view event that he appeared on. And according to the lawsuit filed and then dropped at the time, McMahon agreed to that figure. However, Helwig wound up being fired before the show even took place, failing that drug test for HGH back in 92. So very interesting here. Helwig holds Vince McMahon up at SummerSlam 91 for more money right before the main event. Vince has to cave in and give the Warrior money for the promised main event. We're smack dab in the middle of a pay-per-view here. And one half of our main event that's going over refuses to wrestle unless you pay him more money at the last minute. Vince agrees and then fires Warrior as soon as he comes back through the curtain after the match at SummerSlam 91. Fast forward, bringing him back at WrestleMania 8. Warrior working through shortly before Survivor Series 92. He fails that drug test. But here's some new news for me. He holds Vince up again, this time not at the pay-per-view, but several weeks before the pay-per-view, stating that I'm not going to appear unless you give me an agreement where you're going to pay me a million dollars for every pay-per-view I appear on for your company. Wow. Well, you can call that a businessman if you want. At least the 92 thing. But the Warrior fired again, then there was an agreement, verbal agreement in place for the Warrior to return at the end of 95. He doesn't follow through. Nothing's in writing, pal. What you gonna do? And finally, they agree for the Warrior to make his return at WrestleMania 12, that quick squash match over Triple H. And he's back here again in just a couple of months later, beginning to no-show live events. Now, some say he may have had a good reason with the passing of his father. And if this is true that his father passed on June 30th, perhaps he was sick all weekend. I don't really know the situation. And Bruce Pritchard has told the story 
that they didn't really buy into the whole thing because, again, the warrior's father left him when he was three years old. Now, I'm not one to judge. And I, you know, and it, it kind of bothers me in Bruce Pritchard's mind that he can shun the warrior should this be legitimate for wanting to see his father, whether he left him at 3, 13, or 23, because that is a man's choice or a, a human being's choice, whether they ran off on you or not. Now, I digress here. However, either way, there's always issues in the Warriors camp. We just touched on some issues he had going over to work in Europe, no-showing events that essentially was built around him in the Las Vegas territory that they were trying to get up and running in recent years, I think back in 93 or so. So we come back here to 1996, and following the no-shows here at the end of June, Helwig reportedly had a phone conversation with Vince McMahon on June the 30th after no-showing the entire weekend of events. However, at no point was anyone aware of a death in his family at that time, or so the story goes here. However, on July 1st, here the date of Raw, Helwig did an online interview. Don't know how many people saw that back in 96, but he said that his father had died and claimed that was why he missed the shows, that he couldn't understand why he was buried in the matter he was at the house shows, nor why the company's 900 line teased on Raw they said he was in the doghouse. Helwig then stated in that same online interview that he plans to return to the WWF house shows on July the 11th in Albany, New York, which is his next scheduled booking. Helwig was not booked this week, whether this had happened or not. He had the coming weekend off due to appearances at a comic book convention to show his Warrior comic. Meltzer's quick comment on this was, if Helwig's story was the case entirely, there would have been no problems, and there certainly was a major problem all week at Titan Towers. So there's three sides to the story. There's the Warrior's side, there's Vince's side, there's something in the middle. And I don't know if anybody really knows the truth here, but one thing's for sure, the Warrior Man never lacking in drama. Warrior Man here. As we're finally there, the news has subsided, and it's time for Monday Night Raw for July 1st, 1996. Tape back June 24th, Green Bay, Wisconsin, at the Brown County Expo Center. Vince McMahon and Jerry the King Lawler on commentary this week as Raw kicks off right away with action featuring WWF champion Shawn Michaels, Jose Lothario in his corner, taking on former partner and rocker Marty Jannetty. Jannetty going to be joined in his corner by new rocker Leaf Cassidy, as well as Jim Cornette, as the Rockers explode again. And as big as I was on wrestling history back then, still am, I got a kick out of Jose Lothario coming to the WWF to support Shawn Michaels in his quest to become the WWF champion. Living out his boyhood dream, so to speak, but by this point, this Jose Lothario experiment feels forced and has certainly served its purpose by this point. I guess Vince trying to recreate the Arnold Scullin thing. We had the Scullin babyface leading the top champions of Bruno and Bob Backlund in years past, and now maybe that's what they're going for here with Lothario in the corner of HBK, but having an elder wrestling legend as your manager doesn't work with a guy trying to be cutting edge and deemed the heartbreak kid. And here it is, the click cam. Not sure if this is the debut of it or not, but Shawn Michaels coming to ringside with his own handheld camera here, capturing footage of the fans as it's interspliced with the Raw feed during his entrance here. And on the other side of the ring, it's unfortunate the new Rockers have been nothing but fodder here all year thus far. But with Jim Cornette in their corner for this match, it means a little more. And for those asking, is Jim Cornette the new manager of the Rockers? Well, I wish. Nope, Corny's just out here because Shawn Michaels in the middle of a feud with Camp Cornette. It only makes sense. 
And as the match gets going, we get the proverbial back and forth, I know you better than yourself spots, and counters that lead to a stalemate early on. Marty with some basics on HBK, but Sean eventually gets the upper hand and Marty bails out for advice from Jim Cornette. Then back inside, Shawn Michaels continues control until Marty bails again, and a distraction allows MJ to take control after cheap shots from Leaf Cassidy on the outside. And just when you start to take Marty Jannetty seriously, he makes sure to throw in a goofy celebration dance here, just to remind you they're a comedy routine now. Jannetty, however, begins to dominate on the offense here, dropping Shawn Michaels across the top rope with a gourd buster. Gets him a two count as we head into a commercial break. And then back from break, it's more back and forth action with both men missing corner charges. Shawn Michaels, though, tries for a monkey flip, but Janetti lands on his feet. Really nice spot there. And Marty clotheslines Shawn Michaels out of his boots. Really laying that one in is Janetti. Then coming off the ropes, Janetti down right into the foot of HBK, and Shawn Michaels comes right back with the flying forearm and the kip up. Uh oh. Doesn't sound good for Janetti. HBK trying for a powerbomb. Gonna channel his buddy Big Daddy Cool, but Marty counters into a Rana. You can't powerbomb Marty Janetti, at least if you're Shawn Michaels. So HBK trying for the powerbomb, Marty countering it into a Rana takeover, but Shawn Michaels rolls right through into his own sunset flip attempt, getting a one, a two, but Janetti kicking out. From there, it's Shawn Michaels off the top rope with a reverse body block. But Marty rolls over on top using the momentum, getting himself a two count there. Jeanette's still hanging in there. Marty laying it in on Shawn Michaels as we head into our second commercial break of the matchup. Then back again. Marty with the rocker dropper on HBK. And Jeanette back to the top rope and comes off with the flying fist drop. But Shawn Michaels out of the way. But that's okay. Marty Jeanette faking Shawn out, looking for that flying fist drop, that old rocker's finisher, that Marty Jeanette finisher. But Shawn Michaels rolling out of the way? That's okay. Marty Jannetty lands on his feet. He's still ready to go here. Jannetty quickly tries for a suplex, but Shawn floats over and lands on his feet. Pile driver by the WWF champion and a top rope elbow drop. Has Marty Jannetty out? As Shawn Michaels sets it up, super kick. Sweet chin music. Gonna end this one. Shawn Michaels picking up the victory here. About 15 minutes shown of a 17-minute match. Hmm. Post-match, Leaf Cassidy attacks the champ, but eats a super kick for his troubles as well. Jim Cornette then trying to sneak in, but Corny is intercepted by Jose Lothario, who lays in the super sock. Big right hand dropping Jim Cornette there. And the matchup, HBK versus Marty Jannetty, fun for TV. Nice exhibition for Shawn Michaels as the champion. And if this were 1993, you'd be a little more on the edge of your seat for the matchup. But in 1996, you just knew Marty Jannetty had zero chance of winning this, and unfortunately, it took away from my enjoyment a little bit here of the matchup. Now, when you know the outcome walking in, sometimes it's hard to get 100% invested into a match emotionally, and that's what hindered this one for me here. But for a match on TV, it was fun. Maybe not 1993 levels of fun, but it was still fine. Still, though, just feels like filler. And it makes me wonder what they're thinking, because over on Nitro as of late, we've had the giant defending his title against the likes of Lex Luger and Scott Steiner. And over here in the WWF, their champion is working half of a comedy act undercard tag team. And I hate to call Marty Jannetty that, but it is what it is. But I got to give it to him, at least for one thing, sending Jim Cornette out there to quote-unquote lend advice was a nice touch. 
as he'll be working versus Shawn Michaels and Jose Lothario moving forward for quite a while, so it did make this match a little more important. And I want to go back to the match. Actually, I want to go back to the commentary during the match, and I didn't want to talk about this during the match because I didn't want to take away from calling the match up. But during commentary of the prior match between Shawn and Marty, Vince McMahon was still shilling the Ultimate Warrior and the upcoming six-man tag team main event for In Your House. Remember, it's supposed to be Shawn, Ahmed, and the Warrior taking on Camp Cornette. But in reality, as we'd already discussed, the Ultimate Warrior is already being replaced by Psycho Sid, at least at this point. But Vince still holding out hope for the Warriors' return, so they won't make that announcement until after the Ultimate Warriors' upcoming tape match with Owen Hart airs here next week on Raw. Then here on this edition of Monday Night Raw, we head over to the WWF Superstars taping. I touched on this a little bit earlier. Jim Ross in the ring interviewing Sonny and Phineas Godwin. Of course, Phineas has been smitten with Sonny since his arrival here in the WWF. And she's led him on, costing the Godwins tag team gold in the past. Of course, they eventually won it. And Sonny begins jumping around to any team that holds the gold. And so we fast forward to right here, right now. Sonny calls Phineas out to the ring, teasing Phineas and offers a kiss. But when Phineas puckers up, Sonny slaps him. Sonny then berates Phineas Godwin on the microphone, finally letting him know she could never like someone like the dirty, smelly hillbilly. And what an idiot he was to ever think that someone like her would be with someone like him. Then out of nowhere, tag team champion Smoking Guns attack poor Phineas in the ring, but Hillbilly Jim and Henry Godwin out to make the save, and after hesitation, Phineas Godwin corners and then slops Sonny. Oh, and I've heard some stories of the potential things that were in that slop bucket that night, none of which I will repeat here on the show, but use your imagination and then think even nastier. Oh, that's nasty. Nevertheless, Sonny is slopped. She gets her comeuppance after leading Phineas on for months here in 1996. And that all worked out well for everyone involved because Phineas now a top dollar chef in real life and Sonny. Is in prison. From there, Raw rolls on. We get clips from the recent house shows putting over that live event, trying to sell some tickets. We even get some shots of the hundreds of fans standing in line at Cleveland's Gund Arena waiting for tickets to go on sale. They show the long line and, hey, I was there! It was probably about 200 people back, but I was there. One of the chosen few to stand in line for my SummerSlam 96 tickets. And back in my day, we did things the old school way. And I got my picture with Mr. Perfect and Sonny in the process. Still somewhere in my closet. Raw rolls on. It's Mankind taking on Duke the Dumpster Drossy as Jake the Snake Roberts joins commentary, which we'll discuss after the matchup. But the match begins and almost immediately we're taken into a commercial break. This is all for the best, I'd have to think. Then back from break, it's Mankind choking away and working over Duke the Dumpster Drossy inside and outside the ring. Mankind even delivering that running knee to the seated Drossy's face in the corner of the ring. But the dumpster finally makes the big comeback with a big spine buster and locks in the sleeper hold. Never seen him use that before. And it seems to be working on the crowd, but certainly not Mick Foley. The crowd on camera visibly dead for this matchup. Nobody moving or making a sound. So some crowd sweetening noise certainly comes into play here for this match because you can actually hear a crowd, whether they're actually opening their mouths or not. 
From there, it's the dumpster with a big clothesline, and he goes for a bear hug. How 1970s of you. But Mankind counters out with a mandible claw to escape. Down goes Drossy. Mankind picking up the win here with his finisher, the mandible claw. About four minutes shown of a five-minute match. And outside of an aforementioned job to T.L. Hopper on an upcoming edition to Superstars in July, this will be it for the dumpster here on WWF-TV. Now remember, I mentioned Jake Roberts was on commentary during the matchup, and all match long, it was Jake Roberts versus Jerry the King Lawler on commentary. Lawler spent the entire match mocking the snake, talking about going to bars, drinking double, seeing double, a couple shots of liquid courage, and Jake will be ready for Mankind at In Your House, which I should make mention it is Jake the Snake Roberts scheduled to take on Mankind at the In Your House International Incident. Lawler would go on to tell Jake that he needs to go to the blood bank in order to have his eyes drained. The King stating that Roberts has a serious problem, but he drank it all away. And when the snake sweats, he's a fire hazard. Roberts tries for a rebuttal, but the King tells him that his breath is bleaching his hair. Another alcohol joke. Lawler goes on to say that at least Jake doesn't drink and drive, because he's afraid he'll hit a bum and spill his drink. Oh my god. Jake finally able to stand up for himself. He's proud of his recovery here. And following the match, both men stand up to exchange words at the commentary table as things get very heated between the King and Jake the Snake. Surprisingly, Lawler not backing down from his words as the two men go at it verbally here. Lawler says people like Jake are supposed to turn the other cheek. So Lawler slaps the snot out of Jake the Snake Roberts. And the headset goes flying off the head of the Snake Man as well. But Roberts doesn't respond. He does indeed turn his cheek. Maybe Jake is legit. Lawler wants to try it again. So he slaps the other cheek of Jake the Snake. Ugh, that doesn't sit well with the Snake Man. Roberts has enough and grabs the king by his jacket, choking him down on the announce table as the fans go nuts. But out of nowhere from behind, Mankind attacking Jake the Snake. Roberts locking in the mandible claw out on the floor as the king. Puts the boots to the snake. Mankind wiping Roberts out with the mandible claw. In post-segment, Jerry Lawler says that wasn't a happy hour for the snake. And the king, he was the master of doing what he was told to his utmost ability. We saw him do it with the Hart family and now here again with Jake the Snake Roberts. And I'd been a Lawler fan going back to the late 80s. And this was maybe the only time I felt uncomfortable cheering for him during his WWF run. Really over-the-top stuff here. But Jake played his part equally as well, to no surprise. This is actually a hot story in this segment. I thought both guys were excellent in their part, setting up the future here of their upcoming feud. Then Mankind attacks from out of nowhere before his match or his scheduled match with Jake Roberts at In Your House here in July. More good storytelling by the WWF. It just sucks that Jake Roberts was so out of ring shape here in 1996. As we're off to a WWF commercial, Advertising their 900 line, talking about Warrior Man. Warrior Man here in the WWF doghouse. Then it's off to the ring for one more match here tonight on Raw. Wild Man Mark Marrow, Sable in his corner, going to take on Gold Dust with Marlena and his. And busted lip and all, it's Stone Cold Steve Austin out here on commentary. And he owns it again here this week, pointing out he beat the entire WWF locker room at King of the Ring besides Shawn Michaels and the British Bulldog, and he can beat them too, son. 
Austin talks about having a rematch with Mark Merrow at the upcoming In Your House pay-per-view, a return match from the King of the Ring semifinals. He calls Merrow the biggest joke in professional wrestling. And I do believe a little piece of him meant it. Austin then quips that when he was a kid, he watched guys like Jake the Snake Roberts, but Snake is past his prime now. Easy to put him away in the King of the Ring finals. Lawler then references a confrontation that happened in a parking lot with Marlena supposedly sexually harassing Sable. Reportedly, Marlena stated that she was simply fixing Sable's static cling by adjusting her skirt, which Marrow did not appreciate. All right. As the Marrow Triple H match gets started, it's Mark Marrow on the offense early with crossbodies, uppercuts, and dropkicks that send Goldust bailing out to the floor repeatedly as we head into our first commercial break of the match. Then back from break, Vince McMahon claiming there was a confrontation between Sable and Marlena during the break, but I think that's just lip service to further the storyline. As the match continues on, Goldust dropping Mero with a big clothesline as the announcers then claim that Marlena begins to stare at Sable. And if there was ever any doubt prior to this, the Vince Russo influence is taking effect. Goldust taking over that big clothesline, working a chin lock here, or should I say chin locks, plural, releasing the hold and locking it back on, eating up a bunch of time in the middle of this matchup. Marrow finally escapes the chin lock with a roll-up and a two-count, but Goldust with a fist drop as we head into our second commercial break of the match. Back from break once more, Marrow escaping yet another chin lock, and he goes to Goldie's knees, but yet another chin lock, at least the fourth, if not fifth one of the matchup here. By Goldust, I wrote, yawn. What the hell are you guys doing in there? Marrow finally with yet another comeback in the matchup, breaking out of a seated chin lock with an electric chair drop and a power slam by Marrow gets two. But both men running at one another, thinking the same thing, double clothesline, taking both men down to the mat. And that's when Marlena begins to make the move on Sable, checking her out, walking around ringside, coming up to the side of Sable, as Sable looking very uncomfortable with the situation. Back in the ring, Marrow back up, throwing some jabs and a top rope double axe handle before busting out that old Johnny B. Bad knee lift. But then Marrow becomes distracted by the potential lesbian angle happening on the floor. Marlena then blows cigar smoke into the face of Sable. Marrow completely distracted. Goldust sneaking up from behind, delivering the curtain call. And Marrow down and out. Goldust getting the one, two, three. Goldust pinning Mark Merrow. Merrow doing a job here again this week. We saw it to Steve Austin at the King of the Ring. Now taking a pinfall loss to Goldust here on Raw. Goldust scoring the win in 12 minutes and 15 seconds, shown of probably a 15-minute matchup here. And Merrow doing a pair of jobs in just as many weeks. Seems like Vince McMahon may have given up just a little bit on the push here of Mark Merrow. But don't get me wrong, it's not over yet. Now, as for this matchup here, another nothing happening match for the most part. The crowd again looked visibly dead, regardless of the quote-unquote noise we heard piped in during the matchup here. Most of the match was actually Goldust just applying chin locks, as it's very obvious in recent weeks with his uh, arsenal of moves. Marrow has been told to dial back this wild offense by someone in the office. Maybe save it for the pay-per-views, I'm not sure. We saw none of Marrow's dazzling offense during the matchup with Owen Hart, nor this matchup here with Goldust here this week. The Wild Man didn't bust anything out. The only thing he did off the top rope was a double axe handle, maybe saving it just for the big matches. 
Like I said on the pay-per-views, that's the only thing I can come up with here. As Mero was protected early in his WWF run, but jobs again now, though I do have to say Goldust needed a credible win going into In Your House, where he takes on The Undertaker. And it just feels like the bloom is off the rose here with Mark Mero and Vince. Now which Vince, Russo or McMahon? Take your pick. As they seem to be far more interested in Sable at this point. Now, in regards to teasing the lesbian angle between Marlena and Sable, which is straight off of ECW TV with Beulah McGillicuddy, Kimono Wanalea, not too long before this, would Vince Russo give them credit for this idea? Probably not. Segment of the night here on Monday Night Raw. Is it the Rockers Explode? Again, HBK taking on Marty Jannetty. The Jake and Lawler confrontation was fun. Sonny getting slopped? Make all the jokes you want, guys. Or was it the lesbian booking? Well, as much as I loved watching Sonny sell the slop on the steel steps, try saying that three times fast, I have to go with the Rockers exploding again here. Like I said, not necessarily 1992 or 93 levels of intensity behind the storyline. The match may have lost a step as well, but it was fun for TV. Nothing wrong with it, really. I enjoyed it for what it was. Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty get my pick here this week on Raw. As we move on to WCW and WCW News. Well, the news is there is no news. So it's right into WCW Monday Nitro for July the 1st live in Landover, Maryland at the U.S. Air Arena. It's the old Capitol Center. We're in WWF territory here in front of 7,000 fans, 4,000 paid. It's the go-home show to the upcoming Bash at the Beach pay-per-view coming this Sunday night. And hour one, we kick off with Tony Schiavone and Larry Zbysko opening the show, but they're interrupted by Diamond Dallas Page. So much for security. Remember, they talked about the hyped-up security with Hall and Nash around. DDP just busts right onto the set, and he is visibly upset. It appears that Diamond Dallas has lost his Lord of the Ring ring. Scratch that. He claims it's been stolen. Lock down the building, says DDP. Strip search everyone. Dallas Page has lost his Lord of the Ring ring. And I'll spoil it for you guys. He'll get it back here before the end of Nitro. As we're then off to footage from last week of Scott Hall and Kevin Nash interrupting the main event match. And Harlem Heat, our new WCW Tag Team Champions, by the way. Larry Zabisco calls the Outsiders cowards for not revealing their third man ahead of the pay-per-view this Sunday. Zabisco again mentions a new world. Zabisco promises that there will be a new world order in pro wrestling this Sunday. Wow, how prophetic. And for those curious, yes, Zabisco does get the nod for coining the phrase New World Order, at least here in professional wrestling. And then it's to the ring for the brand new tag team champions, Harlem Heat, taking on Rick and Scott, the Steiner brothers. The idea here is the Steiners weren't pinned last week in that triple threat match, so they get first crack at the new champions. Okay. And on their way to the ring, Booker T back on that cellophone. Shout out to Tony Atlas. We've seen this before. Remember when the Harlem Heat originally took on a manager? They were on that cell phone for weeks before we realized that it was Sister Sherry they were talking to. Could she be on her way back to WCW here? Is Booker T back on the phone with the sensational one? We'll have to wait and see. As the match gets going, Scott Steiner with a rolling belly-to-belly and a press slam on Booker T before a Steiner line. Since Booker over the top rope and out to the floor, Stevie Ray running in, but he eats a Rick Steiner. Steiner line as well to join his brother Booker on the outside. Hot and heavy here as we head into a commercial break 
And then back from break, we see the horsemen now seated at their VIP table in the aisleway. All four horsemen seated with all three ladies behind them. Then back to the ring for action. Rick Steiner, German suplex on the dead weight Stevie Ray. And it was all Rick Steiner there tossing the monster Stevie Ray over his head. But Booker T in to break up the cover. And Scott Steiner back in once again as well. Overhead belly to belly on Stevie Ray. These Steiners just throwing Stevie Ray around like a rag doll, and he's no small guy whatsoever. Then, out of nowhere, from out of the back, comes Colonel Rob Parker, showing up at ringside with his wallet out. Probably not enough room to fit in his pants, if you know what I mean. Then back inside the ring for action, Rick Steiner busting out the old Buzz Sawyer power slam in a Steiner line on Booker T. But shortly after that, Rick running into a Booker boot from the corner. And T with a jumping Harlem sidekick and a top rope reverse body block. Going to get him a near fall here on Rick Steiner. Booker T then going to the top rope, but Rick meets him up there for a belly-to-belly superplex. Rick Steiner launching Booker T across the ring. Scott Steiner then tagged back in. Double underhook powerbomb on Booker T, but Stevie Ray in to break up the pin. Scotty then running off the ropes, but gets caught by a knee from Stevie on the apron. And the Harlem Heat finally take over on the offense. The Heat getting heat on Scott Steiner. Booker then going up to the top rope again this time for a flying splash. But Rick breaks it up, puts a stop to it. Harlem Heat though looking for a double clothesline on Scott Steiner. But it's Scotty who nails a double Steiner line and gets out the hot tag to brother Rick. Rick Steiner and Steiner lines for both members of the Harlem Heat. And big body slams to boot as it turns into a four-way melee. And Scott Steiner busting out the Frankensteiner. Spikes Booker's head into the ring. But Scott Steiner is not the legal man. He cannot secure the pinfall. Stevie Ray from behind pitching Scott Steiner out to the floor. Then following him outside to continue the fight. Meanwhile, back in the ring, Rick Steiner going to the top rope for the Bulldog. And it connects on Booker T. Jeez, poor Booker getting obliterated here with finishers in this match. Suplexes, superplexes, Steiner lines. Frankensteiners, top rope bulldogs. Booker T is the MVP of this show, and it just got started. But the Steiner's not done yet. Rick Steiner with his patented finisher, that top rope bulldog. But Scotty back in the ring for an assisted bulldog now, putting Booker up on his shoulders. Rick going back to the top rope again. Talk about overkill. But referee Nick Patrick distracted by Stevie Ray, allowing Colonel Rob Parker to climb up onto the apron, crotching Rick Steiner across the top turnbuckle before cracking him over the head with his cane and down goes Rick Steiner. Scott Steiner then dropping Booker T going after Stevie Ray as Booker T then rolling up the down Rick Steiner to steal the win yet again this week. Booker T after taking all those moves going to be the one to get the win here for his team albeit with a lot of help from Colonel Rob Parker. Harlem Heat going to retain eight minutes shown of a 10 minute matchup here and I wrote Quite an odd finish, and I'm not sure if Scott Steiner or Rob Parker were out of place during that original diving bulldog spot, and then they just had to improvise and try and do it again. I wrote, weird but fun match with high spots, and the, and the Parker interference, while confusing, looked realistic. Really cracked that cane over Rick Steiner, and very well done job there by everyone involved. Fun match, fun opener. I dare say Raw is already beaten again this week. And just one match here on Nitro. They've still got an hour and 45 minutes to go, and I'm drawing a blank right now in regards to the payoff of this Rob Parker with Harlem Heat thing. I'm thinking Sherry comes back, 
So I'm curious to see what happens in the short term here. That's what I love about this. Even though I've lived it and I've even went back and watched it before, I still don't remember everything. So some things are surprises as I go along, and I look forward to watching this continue to unfold. But we continue on here with Monday Nitro. Mean Gene Oakland standing by with the entire Four Horsemen group at the VIP table. And we go back in time to relive Ric Flair and Arn Anderson attacking the Renegade and Joe Gomez a few weeks ago in the locker room. Then Steve McMichael costing the Rock and Roll Express a match last week, leading to the eight-man tag here tonight. Wow, continuity, competent booking. Remember, Flair and Arn wiped out Renegade and Joe Gomez backstage. They want revenge. And then the Rock and Roll Express being cost a match against the Horsemen as well. Well, all four of those guys looking for revenge. I said continuity. I didn't say a good match. Deborah McMichael on the microphone putting over Mongo being the best in football, and now he's going to be the best in professional wrestling. Miss Elizabeth then tells the girls not to worry, that there's plenty of money to go around, and we all know where that came from. Ew, evil Liz just doesn't work for me, mocking the fact that she has all of the macho man's money. And then it's time for, woo, woman, oh woman, won't you marry me now? Woman on the microphone looking at Miss Elizabeth, stating that she wants to Tap that source. Mmm. Oh, she means money. Woman looking for a full-time chauffeur with Elizabeth's money, or should say the money of the macho man. Arn Anderson's turn. Well, everybody's getting a turn here tonight on the microphone, but of all the names thus far, the most deserving. Arn Anderson says tonight, for the first time, the horsemen are full strength since the mid-1980s. Well, I wouldn't go that far back, Arn. Benoit says he is silent but violent. So that catchphrase begins. Steve McMichael even gets a turn here on the microphone, stating that money makes the monkey dance, explaining his heel turn here to join the horseman, that briefcase at Halliburton of money. Mean Gene then informs Ric Flair that the Macho Man is being restrained backstage right now as they speak. But for some reason, I guess they can't seem to restrain Hall and Nash, for whatever reason. Flair asking the world, what's cause in all this? So the entire Four Horsemen, plus all three ladies, everybody gets a line here tonight, even if they didn't need it, as we head to a bumper promo from the Macho Man Randy Savage, and it would appear that the Macho Man be ready for some horsemen. And we're off to yet another vignette. Our world is about to change. Our world is about to change. Enter the realm. Blood runs cold. In each of us burns the fury of a warrior. Glacier. Blood runs cold. In each of us burns the fury of a warrior. Glacier. Coming July 1996. That's this month, July 96. We're going to see Glacier very soon. Or not. From there, Tony Schiavone speaks. On this Blood Runs Cold angle, Tony stating that WCW has been burning the fury of many warriors in recent weeks. Did he say warriors? Warrior man here. Tony Schiavone planting a seed there, no doubt, even if there's no substance behind it. Clearly another directive of Eric Bischoff, and well played. And then back to the ring for one of the most memorable matches up till that point in Nitro history, at least for me as a teenager, I thought this was classic. It's Disco Inferno taking on Kurosawa. He's still here. 
Haven't seen him on Nitro since 95, I don't believe. Since the first month of Nitro, if I do remember correctly. But somehow, Sawa appears to be a babyface here. No more Rob Parker or anything in his corner. No explanation given. But Disco Inferno, the clear heel. Kurosawa, I guess the de facto babyface. And when you do a turn and lose a manager without it playing out on TV, you know what this means. He's down the food chain. Just how far down? We'll have to wait and see how this match plays out. Meanwhile, Disco Inferno, now somehow the number one contender for Dean Malenko's Cruiser Heavyweight Championship. Alrighty. We kick things off with the ring Kurosawa with various martial arts stances, while Disco Inferno does his best comedy Karate Kid Crane stance in response. To a pop, no less. Of course that's going to get over with the crowd. Are you kidding me? Kurosawa, though, dominates the action. No selling Disco Inferno's chops and kicks, and Disco bails and kicks the steel steps, only to hurt his own foot. Comedy, I tell you. Then back inside, Kurosawa with the Samoan drop, and then the fallaway backdrop variation as well. Kurosawa has the match well in hand, and it looks like he's setting Disco up for the finish, but just then, Disco Inferno's music hits. But why? How? As there stands in the aisleway, uh, what looks like an Elvis Presley impersonator, and I presume he's supposed to be a disco dancer, but all they could find is this cheaply made Elvis jumpsuit, which distracts Sawa and the referee Randy Anderson as well, long enough for Disco Inferno to motion for someone somewhere to lower the disco ball, drop the disco ball from above the ring, the giant disco ball, and it lowers down several dozen feet into the waiting hands of Disco Inferno standing in the middle of the ring who pulls back the ball and swings the ball into the back of Kurosawa, visibly hollow, but Sawa sells it anyway, all while 1970s Elvis is dancing in the aisleway. <laughs> I'm not making this shit up, people. Disco ball to the back, and down goes Sawa, and then the ball reascends back to the top of the arena. Disco Inferno makes the cover, as Randy Anderson slides back inside the ring and makes the count one, two, three, Disco Inferno pins Kurosawa in three minutes and 44 seconds with the use of a disco ball. And this, everyone, is your cruiserweight contender. Thank God the quality of challengers is about to change. And forget the McMahon-Austin ladder match and who lowered the briefcase. Who the fuck? not only queued up music mid-match here, but then orchestrated a dancing Elvis to perform while they dropped a disco ball from the ceiling for Disco to use as a weapon and then raise the ball back up before the referee turns around. Talk about convoluted, and we never see any of this used again, which, not gonna lie, I'm a little sad about. And again, I have to think this Elvis suit must have been the closest thing they could find to a disco costume because they sold it as a disco guy in the aisleway rather than an Elvis jumpsuit. And the ball, the disco ball, clearly hollow as Disco Inferno swung it, but Kurosawa sold it like a champ, like it broke his back. And this jumbo hollow disco ball hits right into him. Kurosawa goes down and out. I know, so ridiculous, but I loved it at the time. And as stupid as it was, this was the direction they needed to go with the Disco Inferno character at this point. Title shots and pay-per-views? Nah. But Disco Inferno would have been over as hell in today's comedy era. Ah, memories. 
As we head back into another commercial break, we get a bumper from WCW Saturday Night showing Diamond Dallas Page stomping Scotty Riggs while he's down, which sets up a match here on Monday Nitro between the Lord of the Ring DDP versus Scotty Riggs. Ugh, American males. It is the American male Scotty Riggs taking on DDP, and as he makes his way out, checking WCW personnel for that missing, or I'm sorry, stolen Lord of the Ring ring, as we get an insert promo, we don't see those very often here in WCW, from Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Duggan telling DDP not to worry about Hacksaw stealing a ring. He doesn't wear jewelry. Hacksaw is a real man's man, after all. I guess real men don't wear jewelry. Duggan says instead, he just carries a 2x4 with a roll of tape. Tough guy. Duggan telling DDP to look somewhere else for his missing ring. As the match gets going, DDP controlling the action early with a back suplex and an abdominal stretch, but uses the rope for leverage there. VK Wall Street can't be too happy about DDP stealing one of his two moves. But Scotty Riggs eventually escaping the abdominal stretch. DDP, though, firing back with a jawbreaker, getting himself a near fall on the American male. Riggs, though, comes back again, tries for a sunset flip, but DDP down, dropping down on top of him, looking for a cover. Riggs, though, countering into a pinfall anyway. Sunset flip going to get him a two count on DDP, but Page right back up and clotheslines Riggs right out of his boots. DDP just dominating and controlling this matchup thus far. Page with a pump handle backbreaker. Nice. And DDP going to try for the move a second time, but this time Scotty Riggs floating over into a schoolboy for yet another near fall. Then Riggs attempts to make a comeback here, dropkicking DDP out of the ring to the floor, but Page avoiding a plancha by Riggs, but doesn't realize Riggs landed on his feet on the apron. And then Scotty on the apron with a nice springboard reverse body block off the middle rope to the outside down onto DDP. Both men then take the fight back into the ring. Riggs busts out a nice-looking flying forearm as well. Riggs going to make the cover after the flying forearm gets one, two, but DDP with his foot on the ropes. Scotty Riggs then picking Paige up for a body slam, but Paige slides over and counters into the diamond cutter. Bang! DDP scoring the win here out of nowhere in five minutes and 40 seconds. Another solid match for DDP this week against an underneath guy, and it's a slow build but this was probably the best recent Nitro match for Diamond Dallas Page. Riggs looked good with the little offense he was given here, and the Diamond Cutter gets a big pop from the crowd yet again, DDP getting his finisher over with the fans here in WCW as we're off to Mean Gene Okerlund in the ring, or excuse me, in the aisleway, going to interview Diamond Dallas Page. Mean Gene stating that he has a good idea of where the Lord of the Ring ring is. As the two men talk, the upcoming bash at the Beach pay-per-view Diamond Dallas Page slated to take on Hacksaw Jim Duggan in a tape fist match. DDP searching Gene for the ring to end this segment here. And to end our number one, it's back to the ring for the Macho Man Randy Savage, taking on a familiar face from years back, Greg the Hammer Valentine. Now here, it would appear in WCW, Valentine even rocking the old Hollywood Blondes stunning Steve Austin's theme.
and it's bizarro world as Valentine feels like it's out of another timeline here, taking on the Macho Man in 1996, and the Macho Man trashing Ric Flair's VIP table on his way to the ring. Well, he did pay for it after all. And as the match gets going, we're going to see if this is as good as their WrestleMania 4 match. It only took eight years for the Hammer to get the rematch here against the Macho Man in a different promotion, no less. Hmm, a revenge match from a WrestleMania gone by. Maybe this is where Hulk Hogan gets the idea to bring the Warrior back. Or not. And rather than sell that Greg Valentine has been on the indie circuit for the past five years, Larry Zabisco on commentary says that Greg has spent a lot of time in Japan and Europe as of late. I should also mention that Savage once again rocking the Sting face paint to promote Bash of the Beach and show unity. Unity! Unity! With his partner Sting and Lex Luger for Bash at the Beach. Back to the action, Greg Valentine controlling early on with elbow drops and a middle rope double axe handle, but runs into a corner boot from the Macho Man and both men spill out to the floor where the Macho Man sending the hammer into the guardrail, but Valentine turning the tables, doing the same, driving Savage into the railing as well. Valentine then drops the hammer elbow drop outside on the floor as Tony Schiavone continues to speculate who the third man is for Hall and Nash at Bash of the Beach. And hey, maybe it's Greg Valentine. Wouldn't that have been something? Back in the ring, Valentine landing a backbreaker on the Macho Man for a two count, and then Savage miraculously comes back at the one-minute countdown to hour number two of Monday Nitro. And the Macho Man straight to the top rope with a double axe handle, but lands into a hammer back elbow. Oof, nasty shot. Savage coming down off that top rope right into the elbow to the face from Greg the Hammer Valentine. And then you can loudly hear someone tell the wrestlers in the ring, we're at 35 seconds into the countdown to Monday Nitro Hour 2, essentially telling Savage and Valentine they need to go home fucking now. So from there, what happens? Valentine executing a back suplex and somehow knocks himself out. Doesn't even make sense the hammer delivering a back suplex and then just lays there as if the move was done to him. I wrote, what the f***? You guys get the picture. And Savage jumping up first after taking the back suplex, going straight to the top rope and dropping the elbow, gets the one, two, three, as we count down three, two, one, to hour number two of Monday Nitro. Match goes five minutes and 15 seconds. Abrupt finish there as they have to follow the rules of Eric Bischoff and WCW. We're going to hour two. We need to end the match rather than just end it after the countdown. Greg Valentine in the middle of a move, delivering a back suplex, but then having to pretend he hurt himself somehow, and Savage having to no-sell the move, jumping up to deliver his finisher here. And you have to ignore all of that because we got to get our pyro off for hour number two here. Nevertheless, Macho Man going to score a win over the veteran Greg the Hammer Valentine here on Nitro. It's reported that Valentine's performance here led to him getting a full-time contract with WCW. Yeah, him and everybody else in line. And as we begin our number two, it's Bobby the Brain Heenan and Eric Bischoff already returning from being jackknifed off the platform at the Great American Bash? I don't know. A little early for me. But the Bish is back, and he has a message for those outsiders, Kevin Nash in particular. Wait a minute. Did he just say Kevin Nash? He has a name. That's not Diesel. It's Kevin Nash. Bischoff tells the outsiders that they didn't scare anyone. Nobody fears them, 
even after what they did to Eric at the Great American Bash. But Bobby Heenan, he begs to differ. He wants no part of these outsiders. Bischoff states that he looks forward to the Bash at the Beach. Wonder why that is, pal. But again, I'm just not a fan of this tough guy Eric Bischoff shit. It didn't work for me then. It doesn't work for me now. He's made himself too cocky since Scott Hall's debut. Bischoff, just an announcer here at this point. Then eating his words, getting powerbombed off the platform through whatever that was at the Great American Bash pay-per-view. And he's already back here on TV, what, like two, maybe three weeks later, whatever the case may be. Bischoff already back, not even really selling the effects. No neck brace, no nothing. I'm just not a big fan of that. As an announcer, not only should he still be selling such a move like that, that's devastating for anyone back in 96, much less a non-wrestler. But Bischoff coming out and calling Hall and Nash out, he's not scared. And we know the storyline will change over time, and there's good reason why Eric Bischoff may not fear the upcoming NWO. But at the same time here, Bischoff standing up to the Outsiders just didn't sit well for me, even back in 96. And then back to ringside, we see Scott Hall and Kevin Nash arrive to the front row, popcorn in hand. And they have ringside tickets, it would appear, holding them up for the camera and Doug Dillinger. And since they have tickets, it must be impossible to kick them out, I would imagine. Those magical ringside seats. Head of security Doug Dillinger checks the tickets out and lets them stay, all the while leaving a third mystery seat open next to them. Will the third member of the Outsiders team show up here on Nitro? We'll have to wait and see here as Hour 2 continues. Our world is still about to change coming this month, July 1996. And we will have change indeed here in July of 96, but it won't involve Glacier. Then back to the ring, WCW Heavyweight Championship on the line. It's the Giant defending the title here against Big John Tenta. The Giant with Jimmy Hart in his corner. John Tenta, formerly a member of the Dungeon of Doom, squaring off against the Giant and his former manager, Jimmy Hart, not just here in the Dungeon of Doom, but Jimmy Hart, even the manager of Earthquake in the WWF as well. And Tenta still rocking that half-shaved head, though at least the eye bandage he's been sporting on Saturday night is gone, so he only looks somewhat ridiculous and not completely ridiculous here this week. But WCW will take care of that by the end of this segment here. Tenta with the earthquake stomp jumping up and down as he plows the giant back into the corner and delivers an avalanche. No pun intended. Tenta trying for a second time another big avalanche in the corner, but the giant comes out with a big clothesline instead, mauling the challenger Tenta from there. Then randomly on commentary, Bischoff claiming that security has called for reinforcements. So even though they're allowing Hall and Nash to remain ringside, Security has called for reinforcements for them rather than just kicking them out of the arena. Makes sense. And we do see a bunch of security sitting at ringside, staring directly at the outsiders. So again, we clearly fear what these guys may do, but they have tickets so we can't prevent them from being here. Sure, makes sense. Only in the world of wrestling. Back in the ring, giant! With a giant body slam on John Tenta. Then some stomping and choking, choking and stomping. Bischoff calling the Giants' offense here methodical, and he ain't wrong. This heat segment goes on entirely too long. The crowd mostly dead for it. Tenta, though, finally making the big comeback after the Giant runs into a big boot. Tenta going up to the middle rope, delivering a shoulder block and a drop kick. Finally drops the Giant to the mat. But it's Jimmy Hart up on the apron, 
Tenta grabbing his former manager, tossing him into the ring as well. And then Kevin Sullivan out of nowhere, up on the apron as well, another member of the Dungeon of Doom. And now John Tenta grabbing hold of Sullivan, but the Giant with a back leg round kick. If you're listening to Eric Bischoff anyway, the Giant with sort of a side kick of sorts here on Tenta to take back over on the offense. And if we don't have enough guys running around ringside, Big Bubba Rogers adding to the mix. He's going to show up next with hair clippers while the Giant delivers a massive choke slam on John Tenta in the middle of the ring. The Giant going to score the win here in 6 minutes and 36 seconds. And then post-match, the Giant holds Tenta down while Big Bubba Rogers enters and shaves off, no, not the rest of Tenta's hair, but rather half of his beard as well. And at least he matches now, I guess. Tenta taking forever to grow his hair back. Big Bubba doing him a a favor here, cutting half of his beard to match the haircut. And Tenta looks absolutely ridiculous here, but I guess he's getting six figures, and I suppose that's all that really matters at the end of the day. Post-match, Mean Gene Oakland standing by in the aisle with the Dungeon of Doom. It's the giant Kevin Sullivan, Big Bubba, and Jimmy Hart. And at Bash at the Beach, it's scheduled to be the giant and Kevin Sullivan teaming up to take on the horsemen of Arn Anderson and Chris Benoit as Sullivan and Benoit's feud continues on. Big Bubba also has John Tenta at the pay-per-view in a Carson City Silver Dollar match. The Giant then taking over the interview, stating that he's going to castrate the horsemen, leaving them all geldings. Well, that might be the first time I've heard that word used in the world of wrestling. Kevin Sullivan stating that the horsemen look at him like a weak link. Well, he plans to show them that the Taskmaster is no weak link. But one good thing here, and likely partially because he's been in the business forever, he's been a booker off and on. In fact, he's a booker here right now in the company. But Kevin Sullivan, during this interview, all the while acting preoccupied with Hall and Nash at ringside. He keeps cutting a promo about his matchup with the Horsemen, but he keeps looking over to see what Hall and Nash are doing as well. Very subtle, but very good. And I'd expect nothing less from Kevin Sullivan as John Tenta begins getting up in the ring So the Dungeon of Doom, leave ringside. As we're off to a highlight video of Dean Malenko and Rey Mysterio Jr., and essentially what it is is all of Rey Mysterio's highlights of his first two matches here in WCW against Dean Malenko thus far. Then Eric Bischoff, out of nowhere, cuts in. Stop the tape. Stop the tape. Cut away, guys. Cut away. We cut away. We've never done that before in wrestling. More realistic type shit as we see a director lady on the announce stage. She must have been talking with Bischoff, but hey, wait, she shouldn't be there. Not on TV. But we are live after all, and this is quote-unquote unplanned. What a concept here by WCW, making everything feel real. Bischoff cutting away from the video as he and Bobby Heenan turn to see Scott Hall and Kevin Nash somehow have microphones. And they apparently work. The Outsiders mocking Eric Bischoff about his frequent flyer mileage. After his bump at the Great American Bash, Hall and Nash then walk right out of the crowd into the aisleway where security hold them back, yet allow them to cut a promo. From there, it's the Macho Man, Sting, and Lex Luger, even other WCW guys. DDP, the Steiners, Giant, Dungeon of Doom, they're all out there to confront the outsiders, but Hall and Nash show no signs of worry or care, mocking all of the WCW stars and the security And even now, the police who show up. So we've got about a dozen of WCW's top wrestlers, security, 
And now the police force out here and Hall and Nash mocking all of them. The outsiders say that WCW will need more than that to stop them. Doug Dillinger and company then usher the outsiders out of the building as Kevin Nash begins to chant Attica, Attica, of course referencing that prison riot back in 1971. Of course, it was also used in a Pacino movie to a similar effect as well. So Eric Bischoff interrupting the segment, a video package. That was something brand new to the wrestling business. It felt completely unscripted and unplanned. Excellent job making this feel live and, and real. It's very visible, if you guys are following along, that WCW owned the WWF at this point with the creativity and different approach to reality-based storylines. Meanwhile, Vince is bringing in plumbers and, and hockey goons on his side of things. The only thing here that makes me cringe is the outsiders no-selling a dozen wrestlers. I can look past the fact that we're cutting away from a Rey Mysterio Malenko video to show a couple of guys who aren't supposed to be here anyway, or the fact that they even have microphones that work working house mics from guys that were sitting in the crowd. This is professional wrestling. I can look past all of that. But the only thing that made me cringe, the outsiders here no-selling a dozen of the best wrestlers in WCW, as well as the police force here, it's as if nothing phases them. They don't take anything seriously, which in theory would make them quote-unquote cool. But I just think maybe Nash goes overboard with the comedy in some of these segments. I'm not saying Hall and Nash should be running away scared, but I'd like for them to acknowledge the situation. Well, these are the police. All right, we're going to leave. We didn't do anything. Rather than poking fun and laughing at him, making jokes at the cop's expense. And I don't know that I noticed that back in 96 in the first run when this was originally happening, but it's very visible now. Show goes on backstage. Mean Gene Okerlund standing by with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Duggan says he found the Lord of the Ring ring, and where else but the bathroom. In fact, more particularly, in the toilet. Wait a minute, Hacksaw, you, you stuck your hand in the... Never mind. Hacksaw says, but that's okay because he doesn't want it anyway. Because he wears a man's ring size. Thought earlier in the show you said you didn't have the ring. Also thought you said you didn't wear jewelry. Now we learn that Hacksaw wears a man's size ring as opposed to DDP's ring here. The ring doesn't even fit Hacksaw's pinky as he shows it off. He can't even get it all the way on his pinky finger here. And Duggan does have some hand bones for his hands. No doubt about that. Big hands. Jim Duggan here who states he doesn't want this feminine piece of metal. Then in comes DDP into the locker room. He's here to retrieve what is his. Duggan telling DDP, if you want the ring back, here you go, before throwing it down on the floor. And as Paige bends down to pick the ring up, Duggan begins loading his hand up with a taped fist and blammo, blast DDP. Well, he asked for it. DDP taking a flat back bump here in the locker room, knocked out cold from a tape fist from Jim Duggan. Remember, the two will meet in a tape fist match at the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. Duggan even telling DDP that he'll see him at the Bash. Meanwhile, Paige, he gets his ring back. Then it's off to the ring for the feature match this week. Interesting. Eight-man tag team action with all four horsemen, Ric Flair, Arn Anderson, Chris Benoit, and now Steve McMichael taking on the quartet of Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson, the Rock and Roll Express. The Renegade and Joe Gomez. And this is our last match to sell the upcoming Bash at the Beach. I guess they decided to save all the good stuff for the pay-per-view? 
And what a quote-unquote main event for Nitro here. At least they could have done this last week in Charlotte. Yeah, the horsemen would have been cheered, but the crowd would have sounded awesome. And the match breaks down almost immediately into a Pier 6 brawl, or a Pier 8 brawl, I'm not really sure here, as the horsemen bail to regroup on the outside. Then back in the ring, Ricky Morton with a Hurricane Rana takeover on the Nature Boy. And the Rock and Roll Express busting out their finisher, double dropkick on Ric Flair, making the cover. One, Ric Flair kicks out of the Rock and Roll Express, double dropkick, immediately, on the count of one. Welcome to 1996, Rock and Rolls, as Arn Anderson tags in, but eats an Inzagiri from Robert Gibson here, and love that Arn bump off the Inzagiri kick. Benoit and Renegade in next as the Crippler to a loud pop and owns Renegade before tagging back to the Nature Boy, but Renegade dropping Ric Flair, sending Rick out to the floor, while Joe Gomez tags in for the first time in the match. Desperado. The Desperado Joe Gomez. Oh, you're in trouble now, Ric Flair. Back in the ring, Gomez sends Rick into the corner with the Flair Flip, and then it's the backdrop of Doom on the Nature Boy, gonna get Gomez a two count here, but Flair with a cheap shot as he kicks Gomez right in the dick. And then a thumb to the eye for good measure. They say, when all else fails, there's two vulnerable spots on a man. Flair using both of them here to his advantage. As the horsemen take over on the Desperado, Benoit obliterates Joe Gomez as Bischoff proclaims, Benoit is nuts! And we'll just leave that there. Up next, the half-trained Mongo McMichael tags in and stiffs poor Joe Gomez before Ric Flair in to drop the big knee. And then Arn Anderson takes his turn again. Spinebuster connects on Gomez as the entire babyface team in to break up the pin, saving the Desperado from undoubted defeat. Gomez trying to make a comeback here with some hope spots, but blows something, and Joe turns it into a backslide instead, and Chris Benoit making Gomez pay for whatever move was initially planned there. And then Ric Flair back in for the figure four, but Gomez counters into an inside cradle. One. Two, near fall by Gomez on the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, who kicks out. And the Horsemen, they have enough playing around, and they beat down poor Gomez for what feels like forever in this matchup. Long heat spot here on Joe Gomez. Even Eric Bischoff politely mentions that Gomez is getting his ass handed to him. It's hard to go unnoticed. Mongo with a power slam on the Desperado and a big atomic elbow, baby. Channeling the American dream there is the former Chicago Bear Mongo. Tagging back to Arn Anderson, who telegraphs a backdrop, and Gomez counters with a knee lift. Ric Flair tagging back in, coming after Gomez, but accidentally shoves him into the babyface side of the ring. And of all the people waiting there for a hot tag, it's hot tag to the Renegade. And at this point, I think the entire face team has backdropped Ric Flair in this matchup, and I'm not even kidding. But shit breaks down during the Renegade hot tag, and referee Randy Anderson becomes distracted is the Renegade going to the top rope for his flying splash? Ric Flair, though, three quarters of the way across the ring. The fuck's he going to do? He can't get there. Remember, referee distracted. Mongo begins to hop back up onto that apron, but he can't make it. He slides off, falls back off the apron, does Steve McMichael. Renegade waiting for the spot, has no option but to jump off. Presumably, he thought he was about to get hit by that Halliburton from McMichael, and he begins to jump but he's already mid-flight by the time he has to realize that Mongo never made it up onto the apron in time. So the Renegade taking a somersault bump into the ring, crashing into the ring, even though he was never hit. 
Meanwhile, though, while Mongo never hits him with the briefcase, and seeing Renegade launching himself off the top rope, Mongo realizing he's blown his spot here? What does Steve McMichael do? How does he cover this, you might ask? Mongo launches the briefcase into midair, trying to hit the Renegade in the air, but completely misses that as well. I wrote LMAO. A quarterback Mongo was not. Ric Flair moving out of the way of whatever that was. Mongo never touching the Renegade, nor does Air Halliburton there. But nevertheless, Ric Flair locking in the figure four on the Renegade and the Horseman finally going to get the win in 11 minutes and 49 seconds. And that finish right there was one of the most unintentionally funny finishes in the history of professional wrestling. Mongo doesn't get to the spot in time and just throws the briefcase at Renegade in midair. I wrote LMAO. And at least Mongo was trying, thinking on his feet. Was Steve McMichael there? Well, I missed my spot. What can I do? Cause an audible, whipping the Halliburton up into the air. Of course, it misses Renegade as well, but at least he tried. Funny finish. Horseman going over, heading into the Bash of the Beach pay-per-view, although it took him 12 minutes to get there. Could have done that in half the time. Told the same story. From there, it's Mean Gene Oakland in the aisleway yet again, this time with the four horsemen coming off their big win here. All of them again hyping their big matches at the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. It's been announced that Mongo will have Joe Gomez one-on-one. We also know by now it's the Giant and Kevin Sullivan taking on the team of Arn Anderson and Chris Benoit. Oh yeah, Ric Flair has Conan, of all people, in a United States heavyweight title matchup. Flair coming for the U.S. title. But they've done almost nothing to build this one up. And Flair has stated just as much that he wasn't a fan of being put in such a position on the card in the U.S. title slot. And working with the likes of Conan, nothing against Conan the person. It's just Flair didn't work that style, and he felt he was above that level, the U.S. title, at this stage of his career as well. As we cut backstage, we see the Outsiders, Hall and Nash, being ejected from the arena, finally. Apparently, it takes nearly a half an hour to get from ringside to the exit doors, because the cops are just now escorting Hall and Nash from the building, and they continue to mock authority here, Kevin Nash asking them to take it easy on him because of his bad legs. And the Outsiders even offering the kind gesture of giving the police donuts. Offering to treat the officers to donuts here. I'll have a jelly, Mang. The Outsiders tell the cops all of their paychecks combined couldn't buy a car like theirs. Especially with their WCW paychecks. And that'll wrap it up. We'll see you in Daytona Beach for Bash at the Beach. And that will wrap up this edition of Monday Nitro, the go-home to the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view Hall, Nash, and their mystery partner. Going to take on the team of Sting, Lex Luger, and the Macho Man Randy Savage. Let's take a look at the segment of the night. Was it that eight-man tag with Air Halliburton? The Steiners taking on Harlem Heat. Hall and Nash arriving yet again. Greg Valentine beating himself. Or Disco Balls. This is the tough one here. Obviously, anytime Hall and Nash show up on TV, it's always something big in this time frame, though. In hindsight, this isn't one of their bigger weeks of things they do. Most of that coming after Bash at the Beach. Steiners and Heat, probably the best wrestling match on the card, without a doubt. Couple of funny finishes here this week between Greg Valentine basically pinning himself or beating himself, and then Steve McMichael chucking that briefcase into the air, missing the Renegade, and Renegade still doing the job anyway. All of that was funny, but the funniest thing of all? Disco Inferno and that disco ball into the back of Kurosawa for me this week. Match of the night, or excuse me, segment of the night? It's hard to say, I guess. Wrestling-wise, I go Steiners and Heat. 
But who can forget the disco ball segment? For a wrestling match, nothing at all. But out of everything on this show, the most memorable thing that sticks in my mind over 25 years later has got to be Kurosawa and the Disco Inferno. I know I'm probably in the minority there, but it is what it is. And again, if you guys are interested in coming on and being a part-time or full-time or even a guest co-host, you're welcome to come on here and dispute my segment of the night. So WCW manages to cover most of the Bash at the Beach matches here tonight on the show, besides the Nasty's Public Enemy Double Dog Collar match, which is probably for the best. We even got a Rey Mysterio video before the upcoming Rey Mysterio Psychosis match at Bash at the Beach. Hall and Nash make an appearance at the top of Hour 2 to keep the people from turning over to Raw. Smart move there by WCW. And they sit there long enough to draw you in, trying to get you to forget about the other show. Then, of course, the Outsiders popping back up to close the show. And this will be the last time Hall and Nash will be, quote-unquote, Outsiders having to buy tickets in order to show up to a WCW arena. But one glaring omission, however, was Sting and Lex Luger. No promo, nothing. Macho Man also no promo here this week. We saw them confront Hall and Nash early in the show, but nothing else beyond that for any of the three men main eventing for Team WCW at the pay-per-view. Not even a response afterwards, which I found really odd heading into such an important event. And well, as you guys may have guessed, the ratings are in. And for July 1st, 1996, WCW did a 3.3 rating and a 6.2 share. That's 3.0 in the first hour, 3.6 in the second hour combining for a 3.3 rating here compared to Monday Night Raw's 2.6 rating and 4.5 share. Even Nitro's replay did a 1.7 rating and a 4.3 share, a share that almost matches WWF's Raw for the Nitro replay. And you may have guessed it, a 1.7 rating for the Nitro replay, another record here for WCW. So Nitro now on an actual streak, three wins in a row, and as we know, 80 more to go. And one can safely say that WCW has tremendous Monday night momentum, and that to this point, even though the shows haven't all been good, the two-hour format is a huge rating success which can be attributed to the two-hour Nitro getting the jump on Raw, but Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, no doubt about it, are a big part of the ratings win here for WCW. WCW doing well. If you guys haven't guessed by now, the real winner here this week, I always pick one. Now, I don't pay attention to who won the ratings. I pick my own winner, Raw or Nitro, every week here in the Monday Night War. Without a doubt, WCW Nitro blows away the World Wrestling Federation this week. Sean and Marty was okay, but Steiners and Heat, the opening match on Nitro, already had me siding towards the WCW here this week. The WWF just needs to step back and regroup, retool some things here. Is WCW taking that realistic approach? Hall and Nash have arrived. DDP slowly becoming a thing. The Cruiserweights, and more importantly, the Luchadors, are now arriving here in WCW. Of course, the big names like Sting, Luger, Savage, Flair are all here. Names that the casual fans may recognize. And as we know, the NWO just six days away from forming with Hollywood Hogan. And I'm sure we're going to talk all about that next week here on the show. When we come back to you with the July 8th edition of WWF Monday Night Raw, 
as well as WCW Monday Nitro. The fallout from the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view. We also got tons more Ultimate Warrior drama to discuss and so much more here next week on Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. <laughs>